all of these sort of piecemeal approaches, they leave intact the existence of the weapon systems. They leave intact the militaries. And it leaves in place the funding and the material uh, interests and the economic interests that are invested within these systems. And it creates a structure of management instead of elimination. So it turns it into, very deliberately, it turns it into a technical issue, right, of managing these weapons instead of a moral issue or a political and an economic issue of eliminating these weapons, of, of taking apart the systems that, that um, facilitate and perpetuate these weapons. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome. We're live. This is very exciting. Ray, how, how are you feeling? I'm feeling excited for this chat today. Fantastic. Um, I am David Vine. I teach at American University in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C., the capital of the U.S. empire. Although right now I'm speaking to folks from uh, Ohlone land, colonized Ohlone land in what is also known as Oakland, California. Um, I am so excited to talk to Ray Atchison about Ray's newly released book, Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages. Um, I'm excited for many, many reasons uh, about the book. I, most of all, I loved it when I read it, and I think it's an incredibly important book. And let me just urge everyone to read it, to get it, to give it to others, to share it with people, to talk about it. Um, so that's why I feel so lucky to have a chance to talk about it today and talk about it with, of course, the, the author. Um, so um, I'm excited for this great conversation ahead, which, of course, you will be a part of. We're looking forward to your questions and incorporating them into the conversation. I'm excited because it's pretty rare to get a chance to talk to someone who played a role in the winning of a Nobel Peace Prize, the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize after the passage of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that Ray played an incredibly important role in passing. Let me tell you a little bit more about Ray, then I'll say some quick words about the book and then we'll jump into the conversation. Uh, Ray Atchison is director of Reaching Critical Will, which is the disarmament program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. If you don't know the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, it's the oldest women's peace organization in the world. It was founded in 1915 when amid World War I, women from around the world gathered to found the organization as an explicit challenge to militarism, patriarchy, and capitalism as the roots of war and violence. A little ahead of their time. 
one might say. Um, Ray is a disarmament and anti-war organizer and activist working in and around the United Nations and with international and local campaigns to eliminate weapons and the arms trade and prevent the development of new technologies of violence. Among a lot of other work that we don't have time to mention, at least not right now, Ray is on the steering group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons ICANN, which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for highlighting the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and nuclear war. In addition to abolishing state violence, they're also the author of Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, which offers an intersectional feminist account of the campaign, the work to abolish nuclear weapons. In other words, Ray is pretty damn rad. <laughs> At least I think so. Um, and I think a lot of, you no, know, I know a lot of other people do. Um, Ray, any, anything you want to object to or correct or amend from that brief introduction? No, that was excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. Now, I want to just say a few quick things about the book and why I love it so much, and then use that as a, a, a way to ask the first question. Uh, I, I think the, the book is incredibly inspiring. It's incredibly well-written, incredibly clearly written. It's very humble um, in, a, I think, deeply feminist way in crediting others for the ideas that Ray develops, and that's all too rare among authors. Um, there are seven core chapters of the book abolishing state violence uh, that in which each in each chapter Ray addresses seven of the major forms of state violence, police violence, prison violence, surveillance violence, borders, war, nuclear weapons and capitalism. So each chapter takes on a different one of those major forms of state violence. And each chapter on its own is a really impressive overview and explanation of that specific form of state violence. But importantly, the book goes much farther beyond each chapter and really beyond any book I've read. Abolishing state violence brilliantly shows the interconnected nature of these forms of violence, the interconnected nature of police and prisons, of war and borders, of capitalism and surveillance, as well as related forces of power that exist in our world, that shape our world, including racism, colonialism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, and class domination. But there's more. Um, the book doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at diagnosing the nature of the problems facing us. Beyond outlining the problems and other problems that we face, Abolishing State Violence is a book that's really ultimately focused on solutions. The book helps provide a, a roadmap of a kind of guide for, I think, activists and, and anyone who cares about our world for a desperately needed cross-issue, cross-sectoral movement working simultaneously to abolish these interconnected forms of violence. Again, police, prisons, surveillance, borders, war, nuclear weapons, capitalism. And critically, not just to tear those structures of power, those forms of state violence down, but to build, to build and replace them with structures founded in justice, equality, peace, and care for others. Pretty damn good. So again, I recommend this book to human beings, people, teachers, 
classes, students, activists, friends, really anyone and everyone who cares about the violence in our world and making the world a more peaceful place. So Ray, you helped win a Nobel Peace Prize. You could have done many things after that. I'm curious really what inspired you to, to write this book uh, and to write it in this way. I'm curious how you came to abolition, in fact, which I assume predates writing this book. So maybe you could talk to us about how you came to abolition as an idea and then what inspired you to write this book at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thank you very much for that generous introduction. I really, really appreciated that. So nice to hear. Um, my introduction to abolition as a framework of thought as well as action uh, really solidified around nuclear weapons. That was my experience with it, which I know is not the way that a lot of people, particularly in the U.S. context, come to the idea of, of abolition. But when I got involved in the anti-nuclear movement in my early 20s, what I learned from some of my mentors at that time is that the thinking around nuclear abolition as, you know, with that phrasing abolition really did draw upon uh, the history of the abolition of slavery. Um, the ideas of state violence that were formulated by black activists and scholars and the demands that they made to abolish the system of slavery and instead to build up democratic institutions that were anti-racist and non-discriminatory and participatory and to invest in, in solidarity and care. So that was our approach in my whole experience with the anti-nuclear movement. Um, so for us, it was not just about the elimination of the weapons themselves, but also also redirecting the funding towards social goods that went in towards creating nuclear weapons, building a new system of, of international relations that didn't rely on massive nuclear violence and on the ability to annihilate the entire planet, which is basically what nuclear weapons offer us. And a lot of the arguments against nuclear abolition are similar to those that were heard in the past against the abolition of slavery. So the way that slavery was talked about as um, being too economically important, for example, to ever abolish, that it just wasn't possible. Um, we heard the same sort of arguments of nuclear weapons and, and still do that they're too important for global security and stability, that they're too important for national security, that they do this vital work of preventing another world war, right? Like the doctrine of, of nuclear deterrence. Um, and which we as anti-nuclear activists have been arguing is wrong for a long time, but I'm hoping is now clear to even more people in our current context, and we'll talk about that a bit later, um, that it's very, very wrong. Um, but I think also, you know, this is sort of how I came to my understanding of abolition um, as an adult, as a young adult. But I think also for me, it's rooted in my childhood experiences um, and my earliest interactions with state violence was actually with the prison system uh, back in Canada, which is where I'm from. Um, and my experience with different family members being incarcerated in and out of prison um, my whole life, the experience of going into prisons to visit, having to interact with, with guards, with police officers, etc. So I thought a lot from a young age about power um, and discrimination and uh, the concepts of justice. And so my earliest kind of interactions with um, 
with anti-prison work, if you will, were like letter writing for Amnesty International as a kid. You know, they would do those campaigns where where people, they would just have people send in letters for political prisoners, for example, or for work abolishing the death penalty. So it was sort of these little piecemeal things. And it wasn't until I was a bit older that I realized we could abolish prisons altogether um, and really incorporated that abolition framework uh, into, into my work as well. So this kind of anti-prison work that I was doing led me to anti-war activism, which led me then to anti-nuclear activism. So for me, it's sort of interesting that it's all it's all jumbled up together and really kind of can trace it back uh, quite a long way. And then the anti-nuclear work is is largely what I've been doing for, for the last 20 years. And a lot of my work right now is around the UN, working uh, with governments and pushing for change through international law, as you mentioned, uh, holding governments to account through international mechanisms around the arms trade or human rights or nuclear policies. Um, but I also do a lot of work with transnational coalitions and also with very local groups and organizing for peace and disarmament and demilitarization. So I have kind of a local global uh, work context going on. And I think that this is really what brought me to write this book at this time. Um, at the international level, at the UN, uh, one of the things that I've learned um, is really that there's a, a high risk of co-optation of, of movements of activism within that system. Um, people try to fit in, uh, be reasonable, be seen as rational, be seen as credible within sort of, you know, the corridors of power when you're talking to, to, to diplomats and to government officials. And I really see abolition as an antidote to that, as a way to not get sucked in um, to that kind of thinking and, and, and mode of organizing. I see connecting across movements as being an important tool to resist that as well. Um, really learning from people grappling with violence every day, what it would actually take to prevent harm or to mitigate harm. And the top-down policies that get seen as reasonable in a lot of these contexts aren't actually going to help. We need the radical transformation. And by radical, I mean, as in from the roots, the definition of, of radical. So when I started writing this book, it was 2020 and the UN was shut down. Uh, activists weren't allowed inside the building. Even diplomats were mostly remote at that point. And I live in New York City, and so I was participating in the Black Lives Matter marches and in protesting immigration detention that was going on at the time and still is going on. Um, and I had a lot of time to really step back from the work I was doing and reflect more on that work and how it related to some of these more local and national struggles that, that, that were happening. And I was reading a lot of Black feminist books, um, books about migration and asylum seekers by journalists and scholars. And I started writing some blogs for my organization, WILP, um, to connect these things up. And some of my colleagues and my boss were really supportive of this. And one uh, one colleague even co-wrote the chapter on this book on capitalism with me. So I thought maybe these are more than just, uh, you know, thoughts I'm having and approached Haymarket with the, the concept. And here we are. Really helpful background. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what abolition means to you 
just especially for people, I'm sure there are people, you know, deeply familiar with the concept and the work on what we're watching today and watching at a later date, uh, but others for whom it may still be a relatively new concept or might be completely new. You could, yeah, say more about what abolition means and why it's an important framing concept in this book. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, abolition is really a twofold process. And I think this is the way also a lot of the, the prison abolitionists approach the issue. So it's it's both a, a dismantling and taking apart and then a building up something else in its place. Um, so we're talking about dismantling the structures and the systems, the material realities of police, of prisons, of, of, of borders um, that have caused so much harm to people, and then investing in and creating, constructing alternative structures that can actually provide care for people um, and putting that at the forefront of, of the work. So this requires us really to think about what we're taught um, is the way things are. You know, we're instilled uh, from a young age of, of course, we need police or of course, we need prisons. This is how we have order in society. So I think a lot of abolition work, the beginning of it is really to struggle with our own ideas and beliefs about the way the world works, who profits from the way the world works, who's harmed by it, um, and what might be possible instead of uh, just accepting what is considered normal or, or necessary to really interrogate our, our own selves. And then abolition really requires experimentation and imagination. I think a lot of the, the things that Mariam Kaba, prison abolitionist, always says is we're going to get things wrong. We're going to try things. Um, and that's that's part of the process of abolition is figuring out what works and what doesn't work. But for so long, so much money, so much cultural investment, economic investment, political investment has gone into these structures. And so we're kind of expected as abolitionists to have all the answers right away. And that's just not realistic. Um, but really, it's it's about having that scope to, to play with ideas, to, to look at what is working in certain contexts, how that can be adapted to other contexts, and being willing to take those risks and, and try things out. I think another important aspect of abolition as a framing is really that it means thinking about community and collaboration and collective action and collective well-being, as opposed to thinking about things as an individual or within the quote-unquote nuclear family type structure or even within, you know, a nationalistic structure. But that we're actually taking a much broader view of the world um, and who is in it and how we can care for each other. Um, yeah, so I mean, we can get more specific than that, like it means thinking past punishment when it comes for justice. It means thinking past weapons when it comes to global security. Um, but that those are sort of the broad strokes about what abolition means in terms of um, this overall project that I'm describing in the book. I think that's really helpful. And now maybe if we could talk about the state violence. I mean, you've been talking about state violence, but again, one of the, I think, really important things about the book is that most people when talking about abolition do tend to focus on one kind of abolition, the abolition of prisons, for example, or of police, or maybe they connect two of those forms, but there aren't many people connecting all these different forms of abolition, and specifically, again, the abolition of different forms of state violence. So I wonder if you could talk more about 
the relationship between an abolitionist approach and these forms of state violence and, and really sort of lay out the, the central argument of the book. Mm. So when I approach state violence that as a as a concept, I'm really just talking about the ways that governments uh, cause harm to their own populations, but also to the to the global population um, in many cases as well. And so at its core, um, rather than providing for the well-being of people and the well-being of the planet, the state builds up structures and systems that oppress and control what the state considers to be sort of, you know, to use capitalist language or Marxist language, the surplus population, right? Based on a capitalist system of exploitation and extraction, that they're the most of the world is sort of fodder for uh, the system of making profit and having power in the world. And so within the seven different structures, and capitalism is one of them, but it also you know, has its reach in all of them and is fundamental to, to, to the other six as well. The ways that they're all connected is super important because un underpinning all of them is a philosophy of, of power and of control, um, of social sorting and categorizing too, of who matters and who doesn't matter. Um, and that sort of on its basis creates mass suffering and punishment, um, both in terms of, you know, whether we're talking about uh, prison system in the United States or whether we're talking about the global war machine of the United States and the punishment that it inflicts abroad. Um, whatever this particular system is that we're talking about, they all have that similar uh, system of, of harm in order to maintain uh, a power for the elite segments of, of the state. Um, and underpinning each of these also are the systems of, of social hierarchy. So you mentioned this in your introduction that the book talks about patriarchy, heteronormativity, racism, ableism, ageism, whatever it is, whatever systems, whatever systems there are that really create a hierarchy in terms of how we see ourselves and each other and other people um, that is also fundamentally underpinning each of these structures of state violence that I talk about in the book. And so they also need to be addressed through um, the abolitionist work that we do. So many questions I want to ask it at once. Um, but I wonder if you can, maybe it would help to make this a little more tangible. Um, and then I might step back again, but if, if you could talk about some of the very tangible material connections between different forms of, of state violence, that, that perhaps that would be helpful. Yeah, um, there's a lot of really specific examples that we could get into. I learned a lot while doing research for the book, more than um, more than I knew already. Uh, even working in anti-war and anti-nuclear spaces for a long time, and being you know familiar and supportive of the of the um, work against the prison industrial complex. But I think there's there's a few specific examples I could give of connections that might be helpful. So. One thing I learned doing research for this book was that um, Sandia Nuclear Laboratory, which is based in, in New Mexico, New Mexico has multiple nuclear weapon laboratories where, where the bombs are created and assembled. Um, 
And it's also, it also has multiple military bases, etc. But Sandia Nuclear Lab was commissioned by the first Bush administration to set out um, the plan for militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. So I had no idea that a, that a nuclear weapon laboratory was directly involved in um, establishing the plans for the towers that would go along the border and the systems of surveillance that would eventually come to be constructed that, of course, we, we know now um, certainly got a lot more attention under the Trump administration, but did not come straight from that administration. Um, so that that's one connection that just sort of really shocked me. Um, another connection that I think is more well known in the US context is um, this program, uh, the 1033 program, which is a direct pipeline for weapons from the military that are considered surplus uh, to be given to police forces, to, to city police forces. And this is why we have, you know, armored vehicles and military tactical gear going to local city um, police departments. Um Another example in terms of the surveillance work um, is really the a lot of technology, surveillance technology that's uh, developed by Israel and then experimented on Palestinians, particularly in the Gaza Strip, uh, is then sent to the United States and being deployed along um, the U.S. Or militarized border uh system as well. And um, there's, you know, uh, direct training programs between United States police officers, United States Border Patrol and ICE and um, and the Israeli military as well. So there's there's all kinds of these real material things that um, the point of the book wasn't to research each of these. So they're just sort of given as examples. But I think one thing that's really interesting in the in the work that we do for abolition is that there are endless connections and, and endless types of examples like this that we really need to dig into and understand because then by confronting one piece of it, um, you know, we can really build up movements that that are addressing this from all the different angles and look at who it's who it's affecting more broadly. I'm excited to get back to that movement and movement building piece. Uh, but I, I, I did. I am curious and want you to talk a little bit about the focus on the United States and the U.S. government, U.S. state. The book is titled Abolishing State Violence. And I'm curious if you could say something about the relationship between states and violence. Generally, different states are differently violent in different ways to different different degrees. But the book clearly does focus on the United States and the U.S. state, the U.S. government. And so I wonder if you could say a few words about that choice and perhaps the broader issue of states writ large and their relationship to violence. Yeah. Um, so the focus on the U.S. is in part because the U.S. is, uh, quote unquote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Of course, if we look at the, the carceral system and also the, the war system, the military system of the United States, it sort of corners the market on, on state violence in these uh, these regards. And it also, I think, an important point of focusing on the U.S. is that U.S. policies and investments really influence and shape the world in many ways, directly in terms of, you know, who the U.S. gives money to and, and how they directly shape other countries, who the U.S. invades, um, who they bomb, um, 
how it treats people coming from countries that the U.S. has bombed. So uh, the U.S. is is um, in many senses sort of a, a good uh, case study to focus on because it encompasses so much of, of this violence and spreads a lot of this violence. Um, but it's certainly state violence is not at all unique to the United States or limited to the United States in any way. Um, and the chapters really on borders and surveillance, nuclear weapons and capitalism go much broader than, than the U.S. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I would encourage folks that are reading this book um, and finding some examples coming from other countries, but a lot coming from the U.S., to really think about how their own countries are implicated in these structures, how they replicate them, how they do it differently. Um and I thought a lot about Canada when I was writing this book, because that's where I'm from. It's where I grew up. And so, um, you know, when it comes to the origins of Canadian policing, uh, being the extermination of Indigenous people in Canada, um, I thought a lot about Canada's carceral system, um, the ways that Canada is also engaged in surveillance and border militarization that it largely goes unaccounted for because everybody focuses on, on the U.S. cruelties and doesn't uh, doesn't look at Canada's. Um, the ways that Canada facilitates and supports war globally, including in, in alliance with the United States and the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, how it extracts resources and wealth from the global south uh, through mining companies, how it contributes to climate change through fossil fuel extraction and police brutality against indigenous land and water protectors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I didn't write that much about Canada in the book, it really made me reflect a lot more on, on Canadian policies while I was writing it. And I think all of the violence that is covered in the book manifests in different ways and in different contexts, but the underlying problem is really how we think about security and safety and care and what institutions we have uh, nationally, locally, and globally uh, to deal with this. I'm sure some people watching, listening will ask, well, what about Russia in this moment? You finished the book, as far as I know, before Russia invaded um, Ukraine. And, 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 um, but if you had a few words about that form of state violence or how we can make sense of other examples of states inflicting massive violence on human beings and other living things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I did finish writing um, well before the the brutalities of this year. Um, but you know, when I I wrote some um, things on this for for Welp and and for external audiences uh, a while ago, and you know, one of the things that I've really taken to heart from uh, from Russian activists and from Ukrainian activists um, and others who are much more knowledgeable about the history um, of the region is really how Russia itself is also a settler colonial state um, and looking at the you know the investments in violence that that Russia has made over the years, how it's framed its security, um, how NATO and the United States, have you know built up their military power uh, in a confrontational way, but also how um, you know Russia has benefited from playing into that uh, great power conflict as well. I mean, that's the thing. I think we see we see um, a lot of the sort of 
countries that are embroiled in these very overarching global conflicts as um, being at odds with each other, which of course they are, but we also need to understand how they're each benefiting from that structure and why peace has not prevailed. Um, when we think about the Cold War and the agreements for nuclear disarmament, they were almost reached um, between Reagan and Gorbachev or, you know, the drawdowns that should have happened with the quote unquote peace dividend at the end of the Cold War that never happened. And a lot of that comes from these very structures of violence, the military industrial complex, for example, the economic investments within both uh, the Soviet Union at the time and the United States that were propelling these governments to have these policies of, of massive violence in order to sustain these complexes that had built up. Um, and so none of that is easy to dismantle, but I think understanding their relationship to each other in less of a sort of black and white way or a, you know, um, a good versus evil way, um, which I don't find very helpful. Um, I think we can say that, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around and who is suffering from, from all of this. It isn't the elite in any of these countries. If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. Harsha Walia demonstrates how borders divide the international working class and consolidate imperial, capitalist, ruling class, and racist nationalist rule, cogently mapping the lucrative connections between state violence, capitalism, and right-wing nationalism around the world. As Naomi Klein puts it, this is a book of unsparing truth and dazzling ambition, providing readers with desperately needed intellectual ammunition to confront the inherent violence of borders, an enormous contribution to our movements. Find Border and Rule at haymarketbooks.org. Indeed, indeed. I'm, I'm glad you came back to the elites, which you, you touched on before as being a, a, an essential part of how and why state violence happens. And, and just now you talked about mm, and you talk about there are people benefiting from these systems of violence. And I wonder if I can ask sort of a simplistic question, but maybe it helps us get at some of these questions of who benefits and who suffers. Why don't states just stop? Why can't they or don't they just stop inflicting violence? Um, why? Why do states enact violence on mm populations and others? It's mm. a good question and a complicated one to answer. But I think, you know, part of the problem globally, I think, has been what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the ways in which U.S. violence has cascaded other countries and regions into violence. I think that's a big um, part of this, this question. We see when countries elect governments um, that maybe would be less violent, less violent towards their own populations that would, um, you know, make public some of the infrastructure that has been privatized with 
resources siphoned off to the global north, um, or or governments that that um, elect uh, leaders who are friendly to indigenous populations or who um, are friendly to women, uh, LGBTQ, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, who have a different approach to the global economy and to, to neo-imperialism and, and colonialism that we see today, that these governments are overthrown, um, that there, there are coups. Um, we see then state violence coming from other states in order to suppress uh, states trying to be less violent. So that's that's definitely an aspect of this too. But I think if we're thinking about um, the U.S. or or other countries, particularly of the global north, uh, that that do enact violence upon their populations and the population of others, I think a lot of it has to do with with the power and profits that we've talked about being prioritized over over peace, over over prosperity. Um, I think. It's important to recognize that not all states are violent, or at least not primarily violent. Um, we have examples of states without militaries, like Costa Rica. We have examples of states that have less emphasis on carcerality, um, that don't have militarized police forces, for example. There's no perfect state, which I think is is important to recognize. We don't have anyone in the world that we're like, yes, that's it. That's they're doing the, the great job and taking care of everyone. But there's different models from different countries of how things have been done differently that do actually provide more for people. Um, and I think the main problem is that in the US and, and other many other contexts, these models aren't seriously attempted, they're not taken seriously. Um, and like I was saying earlier, so much has been invested in the systems of violence that it's really hard to to deconstruct and build something new because there's so many entities that are embroiled in this, which is why picking these apart um, and taking them down is is so important. But I think also the last thing I'd want to say about states is really that they're not monoliths. They're not omniscient beings, right? They're made up of people. Um, and this was really driven home to me during work that I did on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and also the Arms Trade Treaty and, and other initiatives that I've been involved in with governments. Um, different diplomats and government officials, yes, they have to represent their state and their state's views, but they're also human beings with opinions and they can be inspired and they can inspire others. And we can build community, just like we can build community amongst our, our movement organizations and our activist groups um, and can organize together uh, at the local level. We can also organize with human beings who represent states um, to change states. But that's more of a bottom-up approach to, to diplomacy, which I think a lot of people don't really see when they think of international relations. It seems very top-down. Um, so I think sort of breaking that that barrier is very important as well. So much that's important about what you just said in my mind, including or maybe even especially pointing out there's nothing inevitable about state violence, that states do not necessarily have to be violent or inflict massive levels of violence on, on human beings and other living things. Uh, I wonder, though, you know, you have pointed to the elites who have benefited so much, an elite class, um, economic class, political class. You pointed a bit to some of the corporations who benefit financially from 
various forms of violence and, and discuss the, those forms of profiteering at length and really helpfully, importantly, in the book. There are times where I wonder if maybe what we're talking about is not really state violence. It's, it's a kind of elite capitalist class violence or corporate violence. It's using the state a mechanism as a mechanism, as a tool, as a vehicle to achieve other ends, profit-making ends primarily, but also power for the sake of power, political power. Um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about that and, and yeah, the role, the relationship between corporate capitalist elites and the state. That's absolutely true. Um, I, I, I guess I see that still as a form of state violence because in so many ways the the corporate interest or the capitalist interest is so embedded within within the state. And so whether whether it's the state using them or them using the state, either way, um, it, it it's amounting to the to the same thing. And I think I don't I don't talk too much about sort of the non-state actors, if you will, other than sort of the the weapons contractors and um, private prisons and and that kind of thing in the book. But I think you know the the private um, military and security companies are an, are an excellent uh, thing to consider in this context um, because they're not they're not you know soldiers of the state uh, and yet they profit wildly from the state violence. So they may not be responsible, um, although I think are increasingly becoming responsible for conflicts around the world, but they may not start the conflict, but then they profit from it. Um, so they profit from their state engaging in, in this violence. So I think a, a really important um, thing to look at is is to, to track the money. Where's the money going, right? So um between 2001 and 2021, so that's sort of 20 years of the quote-unquote war on terror, um, uh, found that U.S. Congress gave over $2 trillion to the top five weapon companies. So that's Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman. Um, private military and security companies also profited along with these corporations. They got about $104 billion for services in just Afghanistan alone um, from 2002 on. And so this is a wide range of, of things that they're, that they're doing, right? They're, they're doing laundry services for the U.S. military bases or, or transportation or construction. Um, and then they're also engaging directly in combat um, or collaborating with the CIA's uh, torture interrogation um, programs, for example. Um, and in Afghanistan, contractors actually came to outnumber U.S. soldiers. Um, there were about 90,000 contractors in, in 2011, which was the, the peak. Um, so it's just... I think it's a. I think it's an important aspect that we can explore for each of these. Um, we're seeing with surveillance, for example, something that's explored a bit in that chapter. The the contracts now going um, to tech companies, um, but that are coupled with. Pentagon contracts that are going to to more traditional weapons manufacturers and how there's hookups happening there as well. So this is at the moment still increasing, and these are the types of relationships and and uh, political economies that we need to be confronting in our work. 
really helpful. I, I want to move toward the work, the, the work of what we need to be confronting and the movement building and, and, and then of course move to questions from the audience. Um, so to, to move us in that, those directions, I do wonder whether it might be helpful to, to talk about one form of state violence that, as you've shown, is intertwined with others, but but the, the movement to abolish nuclear weapons. You played this key role in, in ensuring the passage of the, the treaty um, at the UN and the international level and international law, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And yet there are thousands of nuclear weapons in our world and we're in a moment where it's more dangerous than any since the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s when our entire human existence could be wiped out at any moment. Um, as as uh, many are aware, although I think not enough are, are aware. So how does abolition and the framework of abolition help get us closer to actually abolishing nuclear weapons how do we how do we move toward achieving mm. the, the vision of of complete abolition in this one realm yeah um so i think i think talking about it in this context the current context uh with with um the russian government's recent threats to use nuclear weapons it's been it's been in the news for months now but of course we're amplified again uh earlier this week um and it's a dangerous time um and there's a there's there's it's interesting because i'm seeing two things one is people um, panicking and one is denial about it. So there's this weird attempt going on right now to sort of normalize the possible use of nuclear weapons. So we have a lot of mainstream media trying to say, oh, it won't be that bad. Russia has these things called tactical nuclear weapons that are much smaller. Um, they, they, they wouldn't detonate it in a populated area. They might just like, you know, drop it off the coast. Um, there was a really bizarre um, public service announcement at the same time in, in New York a couple months ago. Um, I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was really incredible. It was basically like if a nuclear bomb were detonated in New York City, go inside, um, take a shower and uh, watch the news. And it ended with uh, you got this. It was just this really incredible um, <laughs> normalization of the threat of nuclear war and this attempt to to make sure people don't get upset about nuclear weapons. Because when people were upset about nuclear weapons back in the 1980s, when we had a million people in Central Park, for example, it almost led to an agreement between um, the leaders of the Soviet Union and the United States to abolish nuclear weapons. So they don't want that happening again. And did lead toward actual treaties that that reduced the threat of nuclear weapons. Absolutely, that brought us down from you know over seventy thousand nuclear weapons to what we have today, which is closer to thirteen thousand nuclear weapons, <laughs> which which is a lot of nuclear weapons dismantled. But um, thirteen thousand is enough to destroy the planet many, 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 many times over. Um, and 
the reality is that even one detonation of nuclear weapons would be devastating. Um, the, what we know from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, is that it was these, quote, smaller nuclear bombs. They're the same size as what people are talking about now Russia might use if it used a tactical bomb. Um, we know the intergenerational harms that will be caused. Uh, we know that no humanitarian agency can effectively respond if a nuclear weapon is used, especially in a population area. So the the reality is that it would be completely catastrophic if one nuclear weapon was used. But we also know that, and we know this because it's in the nuclear war planning for each of the countries that has these, is that it's not going to stop at one. That would be very, very unlikely. And we see the U.S. Um, being cagey in, in its response about how it's saying it would you know, um, respond to, to Russia's use of nuclear weapons if it did happen. And um, obviously very important, the U.S. is not saying, is not heightening that sort of nuclear rhetoric. Um, but it's, if you look at, you know, Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, did a really good job of unpacking what's actually in the, the war planning scenarios. Um, and, and so we know that escalation is, is quite likely. The whole theory of deterrence rests on this idea that that um, nuclear weapons are there to prevent the use of nuclear weapons. That that's an absurd policy to have, and to be investing billions and billions of dollars every year in these weapons. So I think, you know, my 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 sort of response to people that ask me about what they should be doing or what they can do is is that on the one hand, denial isn't the, the answer, but panic also isn't the answer either. Organizing is the only answer that, that we have. Um, so that means getting as many countries on board the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons as possible. It means working uh, for divestment from nuclear weapons. We have an excellent campaign, Don't Bank on the Bomb, uh, which is all about removing um, financial investments from, from nuclear weapons, the same way others are doing with fossil fuels and uh, and other uh, harmful elements of, of, of our world. Um, we're, we have a campaign to get local cities uh on board. Um, so in New York City, for example, we got city council to adopt legislation that will remove all of the money from city pension funds from nuclear weapon producers. Um, and also that calls on the US government to join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And this is happening all across the US, all across the different nuclear armed states, um, of which there's only nine. So we're not talking, you know, in terms of a system of violence, it's really limited in its scope in that way. Um, and most of the world categorically rejects nuclear weapons. So we do have that, that advantage on our side. Um, but I think, you know, uh, what I would say to people is there's lots of ways to get involved in that issue. Um, and it's an important one to me, but I'm also, of course, very aware that people are confronting daily harms in their lives on other issues and nuclear weapons can seem very abstract um, and, uh, you know, not the most pressing issue uh, of, of our time. And I completely respect that. Um, and I'm certainly would never advocate for anybody to drop what they're doing to come on board the nuclear abolition movement. But what I think, and I say this to people that work on nuclear abolition that are curious about other abolitionist projects is really that what we can do to support each other and be in solidarity is really learn what does connect our movements. And so um, I talked briefly there about 
uh, deterrence theory, I think this is one thing that underpins multiple systems of um, of state violence that are explored in the book. So when we when we think about this concept of deterrence as pre- deterrence as prevention, it's it's seeped into the border strategies, for example, right? Where deterrence also means death. It means people are dying at sea. They're dying in the deserts. It's not preventing people to come because the the pushes are stronger than than the risks uh, of, of being on the move, of trying to trying to find a place to live. Um, when we think about crime prevention, I put crime in quotes there. Um, you know, deterrence there. It's 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 also doesn't work. It just puts people in prisons, right? And it just inflates the prison system. So, um, as a strategy across all of these uh, structures of violence, um, it it's a failure. And so, I think for all of us to be speaking out against this concept of deterrence and saying that deterrence means death, no matter the context that we're working in, uh, is is extremely important. Um, and I think also looking at the ways that ma- nuclear weapons have materially impacted communities within. Uh, the United States, if you're in the U.S. context or in the Pacific uh, or um, in Australia or anywhere that nuclear weapons have been tested. This has been a completely racialized project, right? Nuclear weapons have been tested on the lands and bodies and waters of racialized people who've been considered inferior. Some governments have said, oh, there's no one even living there, when of course there was populations there. They've um, been wholly inadequate when it comes to compensation, uh, um, when it comes to dealing with displacement. The development of nuclear weapons, There, there's um, really great work that's being done right now on different nuclear sites in the US in the ways in which the legacy of the production of nuclear weapons has harmed local communities also in a very racialized way in many cases. So I think looking at those tangible impacts as well on the damage that nuclear weapons are doing right now, just by existing, not even by being dropped um, or, or you know, um, having a nuclear war, they're doing damage uh, right now in many communities across this country and across the world. So, yeah, so those are the types of ideas I would throw out on that. Really helpful, all of them. And just to underline, I mean, the the damage that you pointed to, I I do think um, people need to, you know, people talk a lot about the existential threat of global warming, global heating, climate change. And it is an existential threat. But I think, for one, you pointed to the existential threat some people are living with, the people who are living in communities where nuclear testing was performed. And again, as you rightly pointed out, these are mostly indigenous people, racialized people, people of color around the world. Um, But nuclear weapons are an existential threat that could literally end human existence on Earth today. And we need to deal with that. In addition to the even as you said, if 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 a nuclear exchange, a nuclear war, any sort of nuclear explosion um, weren't to happen, every dollar, as you know, you point to every dollar that we're spending on on more nuclear weapons that are completely unnecessary and making the world a more dangerous place is a dollar we're not spending to house someone, to feed someone, to clothe someone. Um, and and I, I think it it is important to remember that the, the threat of even even an accidental nuclear war, an accidental nuclear exchange is is 
extraordinarily great, um, even if Russia and Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine. Um, I want to try to squeeze in one or two more quick questions before we start taking questions from the audience. Um, I'm just selfish that way. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but no, I promise we'll get to um, questions from the audience. And we thankfully, we still have another approximately 33 minutes to go. Um, so uh, yeah, I want to get to, again, back to the organizing and, and some concrete examples. Um, defund the police got a lot of um, mainstream attention, of course, and, and became a, a, a phrase that, that people were using around the world. Um, it also got some pushback eventually, such that you know some people on the left, including those who, who agree with the sentiment of defund the police um, or abolish the police, um, uh, sort of felt like the language was toxic. And I wonder if there's anything we can learn from those sorts of debates about language and, and what language we use as organizers and to broaden our movements. Um, and I, I wonder if, if you have any thoughts about abolition similarly as a, a framing device, as a, a tool that, you know, at least some people in this world, of course, you know, if you say we need to abolish prisons or abolish the police, uh, or abolish militaries for that matter would be either think you're you're crazy or you know get scared or you know yeah that's that's an honest reaction i i've had from a lot of people within my own life when i when i talk to them about abolition there's sort of um often if you haven't thought about this before there's a knee-jerk reaction um to it that it sounds scary in some way. And that goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about how um, we've really the first step of of being becoming abolitionist is to interrogate our own understandings of, of the ways the world works. And what I find is that um, with most people that I talk to, once you start sort of unpacking what abolition means or what defund means, um, they largely agree. They see the harms that are created. They understand the system isn't working the way it's working. Um, and so once you can have that as sort of your baseline level, then you can start moving people to in, a, in an abolitionist direction. Um, when it comes to the pushback that um, you know, slogans. I think that's, it's, it's offensive to call it a slogan, defund police, but people do do that. Right. And they, it's as if, it's as if we're just about marketing or something. And it's, um, it's, I think this, it's a bit of that co-option thing that I was talking about earlier of, of wanting to seem credible and realistic versus um, actually calling for what we want. And I tend to believe uh, that movement activists and organizers uh, shouldn't compromise demands or shouldn't compromise what we're calling for. I think defund gets so much pushback because it's clear and it's concise and it's effective. It has meaning. Um, and if it was if it was done, it would have an impact, a meaningful impact. Um, and it's easy to scaremonger around this language if you're opposed to it. But it's also, I think, incredibly effective to organize around. And it sets a very clear objective for, for what it is that we want. Um, going with what's comfortable doesn't, or easy, or that most people can agree with, uh, doesn't actually change things. 
in in my experience. Um, so you know, in the nuclear weapons context, for example, um, or or just in in with the arms trade too, in the production of of weapons more generally, in 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 militarism more generally. Um, there's you know this segment of 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 organizers who consider themselves to be arms controllers, right? They want arms control. It's not disarmament, it's arms control. Um, and so they think, well, we need to reduce the stockpiles of nuclear weapons. Or if we have a policy that says we won't use nuclear weapons first, so we'll only have them for defense. Or, um, you know, we'll, we'll only sell weapons to countries that meet these requirements, um, but we'll still profit off of <laughs> wars um, in general. Um, all of these... Uh, all of these sort of piecemeal approaches, they leave intact the existence of the weapon systems. They leave intact the militaries. Um, they don't challenge anything at its core. Um, and it leaves in place the funding and the material uh, interests and the economic interests that are invested within these systems. And it creates a structure of management instead of elimination. So it turns it into, very deliberately, it turns it into a technical issue, right, of managing these weapons instead of a moral issue or a political and an economic issue of eliminating these weapons, of, of taking apart the systems that, that um, facilitate and perpetuate these weapons. So abolition and, and defund and uh, divestment, these are the goals that we're after, and we shouldn't compromise on that to make people comfortable, is my opinion. Um, I think we have to be clear what the objective is, and there will be others out there who will make those compromises. Um, and of course, there's going to be steps along the way. It's not like we go like this and the police departments um, around the country are automatically defunded. We've seen that <laughs> in, the, in the past few years. But if we move our own goalposts, if we start trying to accommodate people's fears, um, then we're never going to have a chance of actually achieving the goals that we set out. Really beautifully put, and I thought I would just read one quick uh, quotation that that Ray quotes in um, in the book uh, that I think speaks to this. A abolition isn't radical. Ray writes, um, "Abolition isn't radical." Argues indigenous organizer Robin Oxley. What is radical is living in a society where acts of violence are accepted because a blue uniform is worn or where racist legislation exists. Now, I, I promise I do want to turn to questions from the audience in a moment, but I, I did want to give you an opportunity to offer any concrete advice that you might have for organizers, activists, people who want to get involved in abolitionist work, and maybe especially work that would cross the boundaries between these different forms of state violence when so often movements do tend to focus on one form of state violence or another, rather than taking them all on or multiple kinds of state violence simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I was talking about this a little bit earlier, but I think learning learning from each other, sorry, there's a plane, I don't know if you can hear that. Um, learning from each other and supporting each other is really key. Um, so like I said, this doesn't mean that we all have to work on the same thing or take the same tactics and, and approaches but we do need to make sure that we're not undermining each other in our work. Um, so for me, I think some key things are being expansionist in terms of, um, you know, 
our inclusion of people, um, being actively anti-racist, um, being inclusive of LGBTQ plus folks, um, learning from, being led by uh, Black, Indigenous, and organizers of color, um, building up a culture of anti-fascism and community. This is ever more important today, as we're seeing around the world, in the U.S. for sure, but also around the world too, um, and I think has to be the backbone of, of our work. Um, I think when it comes to confronting political power, um, some of the things that I've been thinking about um, over the last few years really is instead of focusing so much effort on trying to change the minds of those who are in power, who are profiting from the system. It's really, for me, about inspiring those who tend to agree with us, but maybe think they can't do anything about it. Um, they they don't know where to engage, or they, they are willing to engage, um, but they don't know, you know, what it is that they can be doing uh, to help. And so really, building political pressure and changing things from the bottom up rather than going at it at the top down rather than, you know, working all the time with, with sort of the, the, the political leaders of the day. Um, but of course, I also understand those who do want to work directly with, say, police or politicians on different projects. And there's room for that. And I think that's an, another important lesson is that, you know, there's rooms for lot, room for lots of different strategies and, and attempts to do things. It's just it's not where I'm at right now with my organizing. And I think this, you know, diversity of skills and tactics is important. But again, as long as we're not as long as we're not undermining each other. But if we're acting in solidarity with each other to actually achieve what we want to achieve, then there's space for, for a lot of different types of work. Um, and I talked about divestment a lot already, so I won't go into that again. But I do think in terms of defund the police, in terms of abolishing the prison industrial complex, in terms of abolishing war and, and nuclear bombs and surveillance, Taking away the economic power from these structures is is very important, and I think in anti-capitalism, uh, in terms of movement degrowth um, politics, help us get to that. Ideas like feminist political economy help us get to that. Um, but overall, yeah, dealing with the dealing with the divestment angle of things is is an important sort of unifying uh, approach to take. I think across the campaigns and movements. I'm with you on paying great attention to and trying to take on the economic foundations and the economic foundations of these structures of power. Let me finally, thank you for your patience, everyone in the audience. Uh, let me finally move to some questions from the audience. Uh, one uh, question from Leslie says, can you share some of your thinking about the current fascist drives in the world, including here in the US and how the reality that reality intersects with state violence and mm. recent elections bringing the fascist party into power in, in Italy only underlines the importance of this question about the, the rise of fascist movements around the world. Yeah, I think that I think this is an excellent example of how violence begets more violence, right? I mean, the the basis of of the fascist rise that we're seeing um, is uh, at its core has racism, um, hatred of migrants, um, trans and queer phobia, anti women politics, um, and this is this is where state violence leads us to. Um, 
state violence relies upon fear of the other. Um, to, it relies upon scapegoating certain populations. It relies upon socially sorting people, oppressing people. Um, it shows us the limits I to, I think also, um, very importantly of concepts like, um, what I would call and what others call white feminism, right? Like this idea of, of liberal feminism where it's putting women in positions of power is, is a feminist act, no matter what those women might do when they're when they're in power. Um, and so it's it's breaking the glass ceiling to put a fascist woman in power as just happened in Italy. It doesn't help women. Uh, the politics are actually very anti-woman um, and anti everyone else. And it only benefits fascists. <laughs> so I think that's that's an important aspect to, to take into consideration with this. And it's the same. It's the same also in the in the U.S. There's um, the U.S. military celebrates like it's all women nuclear missileer crew that it has um, and writes pieces about how feminist um, U.S. nuclear policy is. Or women were recently, I don't know if they still are, the heads of um, most of the major weapons contractors uh, in the U.S. So this is, you know, Nancy Fraser and um, and the others that she wrote uh the feminist manifesto from the 99%, I think it was called. Um, they have this great line in that book uh, about how women in power might break the glass ceiling, but they don't care where the shards fall. And I think that's um, has to be part of, part of our analysis as well. But yeah, I just, I just see overall the fascist um, direction where things is going as being sort of the logical conclusion of, of state violence and the structures that have been set up, um, even if it's got, gone beyond what those who established these structures ever imagined for themselves. And so abolition is, is an extremely important framework to confront fascism while it's uh, unpacking and dismantling these structures. Really helpful. And I, I think, you know, in my mind, the range of ways and people have about this, um, uh, but there are a range of ways in which we can trace the rise of fascism in the United States and in Europe and other parts of the world to the war on terror, among many other complex roots and causes. But the, the violence, the really extreme violence that the George W. Bush administration uh, unleashed with its so-called war on terror and the, the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and beyond, um, really did, I think, as you spoke to, you know, violence has begat violence in profound and scary ways that, of course, could sadly get worse if we don't resist. Question from Emily. Any thoughts on strategies for countering mainstream media's rhetoric of legitimizing war? Yeah, I think here um, part of the Part of the solution to that is uh, looking again at the economic justifications for war, interrogating who's profiting from war. Um, it's, you know, in particularly in our current context, um, you know, when we're seeing the horrific um, experience that folks in Ukraine are having um, and the the mass violations of, of human rights and international humanitarian law by Russia um, in this illegal war. Um, it's sort of, I think it's, it's easy to rally people behind um, justification for military buildup in that situation. And it's, um, 
it's a delicate situation for for anti-war organizers um, because you know if you if you start to question that, then it's as if you're condoning Russia's war um, instead of seeing all war. Uh, and militarism as being the core of the problem of this and the capitalist system that that underpins uh, the justification for for war and the extraction of fossil fuels and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think to to sort of to challenge the the mainstream glorification of war, um, we need to look at uh, what's happening right now in terms of the military contractors, for example, they recently met to talk about how much production they need to go into now to replace the stockpiles of the European countries and the United States that have been sent to Ukraine, right? So we know that they are foaming at the mouth right now. They're very excited about this war and they're going to profit wildly from it. They already have and they will continue to do so. Um, we also need to, I think, look at the cultural support for war. Um, and that's broader than this current context. This is this is sort of considering the military industrial complex um, in its broader form, which lots of people add on academic and entertainment into that complex, right? And there's a reason for that, because the justification for U.S. imperial adventures and military adventures around the world are supported by uh, the entertainment part of, of the military industrial complex, um, uh, films, television shows, um, video games, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the sort of reflexive belief that um, that militarism is how we have security in the world, for example. Um, and this is, of course, also relevant in terms of the prison industrial complex, uh, complex and the, um, the prison abolitionists speak about copaganda, right? All of the, the entertainment that is produced around, um, portraying police as, as, um, forces for good in the world. And, um, you know, sort of that narrative that dominates our television screen that, oh, there might be a few bad apples, but overall police are there keeping us safe, um, and protecting our communities, uh, even though we know the opposite is true in reality. Um, so I think that aspect of things is also really important in our work against any of these structures of violence is really, being critical of of what is being mass produced for people and and um and what the alternative narratives are that are that are more reflected in reality it's really important work that needs to be done and i i think i think at the same time um there 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 is a fair amount of evidence that that the public in the united states and many other parts of the world really has turned against war in in Profound ways, and such that a, a U.S. president now, including Trump before Biden, couldn't launch a large-scale invasion of another country. Wouldn't get the political support for that, most likely. I, I think, um, in the way that that George W. Bush could in 2001. Um, another question, and I, I don't know if this falls outside of your more or less. Well, I'll just ask the question. <laughs> Um, there, we can move on to other questions um, if, if it's not one you want to take on in full. How would you respond to the usually good faith arguments from sections of the left in favor of nuclear power as a cheap, clean alternative to fossil fuels? 
In your opinion, is there any way around the fact that nuclear power is so connected to the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Yes, um, I can take this question. It's okay. It doesn't fall outside of, of my work. Um, no, I'm given yeah. your expertise on, on all things nuclear. I shouldn't have even. No, no, not at all. Um, I can see why you might have thought that. But no, I'm I'm also opposed to nuclear power and and um, uh, strongly believe that it is neither cheap nor clean. Um, and uh, it's a shame that it's sort of got this resurgence. Um, even among, as the questioner asks, um, says, uh, well-intentioned climate activists who see it as an alternative to fossil fuels. But uranium mining, which is necessary for the production of, of nuclear fuel, causes incredible environmental uh, and humanitarian devastation um, and is also done mostly on indigenous lands um, in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, um, and in Africa. Um, and uh, its shipment around the world causes risk of environmental catastrophe. Um, the production of nu nuclear fuel and the byproducts um, that can then be used uh, and enriched further to be used in nuclear weapons. There's your proliferation link. You have the catastrophic disasters that we've already seen from Chernobyl and Fukushima. Um, we have right now fighting at a nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, um, which could cause a radioactive disaster um, around in the continent, but around the world as well. Um, and then you have the issue of radioactive waste storage after all is said and done, which they still don't know how to safely dispose of radioactive waste. Um, they have tried storing it in mountains, storing it in the ground, storing it in the sea. But all of these obviously has massive uh, health and environmental risks associated with it. So no, nuclear power is not a viable alternative. It is also not cheap. It is advertised as being cheap. It is not cheap. Um, and there's been a lot of great work being done around like even these, these small module reactors that are being advertised as sort of being cheap and accessible for remote communities to have stable access to power. And the economics just does not at all add up. So I think for all of those reasons, we need to go to sustainable energy, not nuclear power. Thank you. You have this really helpful, lovely, I think, um, phrase or term, promiscuous care. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you mean by promiscuous care and why it's important politically or otherwise. Absolutely. So this phrase comes from the Care Collective uh, in the United Kingdom, and they published a book with Verso in 2020 called The Care Manifesto. And so this, this phrase they use, promiscuous care, is really about expanding the idea of kinship beyond the nuclear family concepts um, to think about who we need to care for and who our relations are, meaning humans uh, and animals and plants and water. Um, so really digging into a lot of indigenous philosophy as well around concept of care and what our responsibilities and obligations to the planet are as well as to each other. So I think that this concept is really foundational to abolition, which requires us to think about each other as, as human beings rather than as treating each other with fear or 
um, you know, desiring to punish each other by locking people away in prison or keeping people out with militarized borders or bombing people in wars or whatever that othering, that process of othering is that we do that allows um, the sort of tacit complicity in in state violence that that many people have. Um, so I think it, it it works directly against that. And I think this also relates to a lot of what I try to go into in the chapter on capitalism with my friend um, Nella Porovich. Um, we talk a lot in that chapter about degrowth, and we did a lot of learning about the degrowth movement in politics and, and the critiques of it also, um, but really approaching it as a concept that fits quite well with promiscuous care because degrowth is about focusing less on accumulation of wealth, less on extraction of resources that are required by capitalism um, and looking at how we can arrange our economies. And so this includes, there's a lot of D's here um, that, that Jason Hickel and others who write about degrowth use, but decolonization of land, de-enclosure of the commons, decommodification of public goods, um, de-intensification of, of work, the de-thingification of nature, so turning nature into resources, um, turning plants, animals, and those relations into, into objects that we use, um, de-escalation of, of the ecological crisis, um, and demilitarization of, of everything, basically. So this really mes meshes in, I think, with promiscuous care and with concepts of a feminist political economy, which itself offers ideas of, of degrowth in terms of distribution of labor, which is gendered, but also in terms of what we need to be investing in, um, in order to promote care over profit. And so there's a lot of examples that we go into in the capitalism chapter. Um, so I'll spare you, uh, the run through of those, but there are a million more that we could have included. And, and, and what we really hoped to do with that chapter wasn't to be definitive about what degrowth or feminist political economy or promiscuous care would look like, but to really offer some ideas and hopefully inspire more thinking in that direction. Really helpful. The, and the book, as I said at the outset, has inspired me in, in many ways. I wonder, in addition to inspiring people in that last chapter on capitalism, uh, what you most hope this book accomplishes, what contribution you want it to make in the world, what you hope it does in the world? It's a question I like asking many people in many contexts. I, I think this book is going to have tremendous impact in multiple places at multiple levels. I hope it gets translated. I hope it gets read really widely. But um, yeah, what what are your hopes for the book and what it what it accomplishes? It's a good question. Um, many things. I think at the core, um, I hope it provides inspiration for activists and organizations. Um, and though anyone curious about abolition, I think you know, when I was becoming abolitionist, as um, as the phrase is used by Derek Purnell and others, um, it, it really opened my mind to the idea of, of what might be possible um, and really, you know, 
helped me challenge my own thinking. And so I'm hoping that this book can be part of that for other people as well, in addition to all of the other amazing work that, that's been produced on, on abolition over many, many years. Um, I hope that, you know, it's seen as um, something that can help people to look outside of their own issues, not, like I said, to start working all of a sudden on a different issue, but to understand what the relationship is between these structures, to think about what tactics might have worked in other contexts and how we can learn from each other and ultimately how we can even organize together. And so I don't see it as necessarily a book that's going to convince people who are fundamentally opposed to abolition or who are profiting from structures of state violence. I mean, maybe it'll affect a few of them, and that's that's amazing. But the intention behind it is really to be an introduction to the topic to people who are curious, who are undecided and have questions, and expansionist or inspiring for those who are already working for abolition. Um, so not to say, you know, this is what we should be doing, but this is what people are already doing. I say that a lot in the book and give examples of, of specific organizations um, and publications and um, and initiatives that are that are already underway. And there's a lot of examples of collaborations that are already going on among different abolitionist movements in the books. So groups looking at the connections between um, the war on terror and then its relationship domestically to the U.S. and the carceral system and surveillance. Um, groups during COVID that were looking at what could be built out of this moment of COVID um, that provides for all, which really brought together folks from the Red Deal um, and Land Back initiatives, along with those who are working for the abolition of the prison industrial complex and community investment. Um, so there's already a lot of examples in the book that I that I try to give and give the sense that we don't have to reinvent things. There's energy and collaboration and creativity going on. We just need to to get folks um, involved in that work. Um, and I think also, you know, I want to and try to underscore in the book how important intersectional feminism is to all of this as well. Um, and Black feminists like Angela Davis and Marion Cabo and Bell Hooks and many, many others have made this case extraordinarily well. Um, abolition feminism now is a really good place to start for those that are curious that came out from Haymarket earlier this year, written by Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica Miners, and Beth Ritchie, but also going back to the work of um, Insight and Critical Resistance um, and the Kambahi River Collective Statement from the 70s. So this tradition is, is, um, is, is rooted and I think absolutely valuable because it really makes us look at the overlapping experiences of oppression and approach thing from approach things from a very inclusive um, and nuanced position. Thank you. Inspiring yet again. Um, we only have a few more minutes and I, I maybe I can squeeze one more question and you again, the book is beautifully written. And there were so many passages I would have liked to have read. Um, I, I did think I, I couldn't go without reading the, the last sentence from the introduction, which reads, the more we can see of the system and of each other, the better chance we have of weaving our hands together through the cogs of the machine to grasp each other and take hold of the radical idea that we can build a world of peace, freedom, justice and solidarity for all. 
Again, I think that's beautifully put and inspiring. I, the book is, in my mind, a, a call to action as well as a deeply analytic book that, that will educate people in important and profound ways. I wonder if you have some last thoughts about the, the role of hope, which is something you write about, and the sort of call to action and to get to work that I think is, is really at the core of the book. Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of hope. And uh, like any good abolitionist, I always have Miriam Kaba's mantra in my mind at all times, which is hope is a discipline. Meaning that, you know, it's, it's, or at least how I interpret it as it's not something that exists externally or that we can hold on to. It's something that we have to practice every day and embody in our own work. Um, and I've been thinking about hope a lot since I was young and I read um, Albert Camus' work, like the myth of Sisyphus and the rebel and the plague. And I, he's a complicated guy. But um, what I took away from, from those particular works from his is our obligation to work for change, even in the face of certain failure. He writes that at times. So he he really believed that life was in the struggle and that even when things are overwhelming or absurd or um, all all hope is lost in, in quotations, um, we can find meaning and transformation in pushing through that anyway and working despite everyone telling us we can't make any change or, or, or it feeling like we can't possibly have any impact on things. So these are, there's more hope quotes I could give you, but we're at the, we're at the time. So, um, I think that that, those are some of the important things that I hold in my mind while I'm doing this work and, um, work through the despair and how I've managed to think about nuclear war every day for the past 20 odd years. Thank you. I do, yeah, think we we can and must believe that we can win. We can make the world more peaceful. And I love how you quote Camus saying that we can despair of existence for you know, power over fact of human existence, but not of history, where the individual can do everything. It's individuals who are killing us today, you quote Camus. Why should not individuals manage to give the world peace, and then you end the book by saying we have nothing to lose but our chains, which I think again is, is beautiful. Um, I wonder if you just have some final words as we are now over time by a second or two, but if, yeah, some final words to leave us with. I think um, you know I'll leave you maybe with a thanks to to, to you for your time and your um, and your 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 dedication to these issues, your own work against U.S. militarism and military bases, and a thanks to, to Haymarket for publishing this book, providing platform for, for this event, but also for all of the other online events that Haymarket has been doing, um, including during the, the pandemic and the, the collaboration and, and inspiration that I've found in those events and in the other works that Haymarket has published. Um, and then I'll leave finally with, a, with another quote on hope from um, Irish poet Seamus Haney, who says, hope is not optimism, which expects things to turn out well, but something rooted in the conviction that there is good worth working for. Ray, thank you very much. I hope people are applauding you now. I applaud you <laughs> and all the amazing work you've done throughout your career and, and with this book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 
If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.